Our text this morning will be the 15 verses of chapter 6. If you would now please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Zechariah chapter 6. Again I lifted my eyes and saw. And behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, Those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use this text this morning to show us the Lord Jesus Christ, to show us him in all of his glory, To show us yourself, O Father, and your strength and power. Lord, we ask this morning that you would remind us that we are your children and that we need you each and every day. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
It is a hard thing for us, isn't it, to think about our own weakness. To think about the things that we fall short in. The ways in which we are unable to accomplish tasks. No one really likes to be an underdog. No one likes to be thought of as weak. And especially in this day and age, in our culture and in our society, this hits close to home as we see around us the church appearing to weaken. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't like that. We would like the church to be strong. We would like the church to be powerful. We would like the church to be like our parents' church or our grandparents' or great-grandparents' church, a force for good in America and the world today. But the truth of the matter is that the Bible speaks on a different note. The Bible reminds us that we are weak and that that's okay because there is one who is strong. It is the Lord our God. And so this morning, as we look at chapter 6 in the prophecy of Zechariah, we see that it is okay to think about our weakness if it points us to the strength of the living God. This is a very timely message for the church in America in the 21st century. Because we feel our authority and power slipping away from us, and If as your pastor I am honest with you, I did not several weeks ago say to myself, I think I'll preach through Zechariah, it will be really easy. Each day as the Lord's Day approaches, I ask my wife whose idea it was to take on Zechariah. But the reason we're in Zechariah is because it is so timely. Because the church seems to be in a spot where all authority and power is slipping away and we feel that the kingdom of God will slip away because of it. But Zechariah tells us that this is not the case. That God is on His throne and that He indeed will preserve His people. And so this morning we see two visions or images. The final vision of this busy night The vision of the four chariots. And then the Lord brings a word to us about a priest on a throne. Two pictures that are before us that show us the power and authority of God to accomplish what He has promised. A vision of four chariots and then a priest on a throne. Let's begin then by looking at the vision of the four chariots. Once again, we see a familiar phrase at the beginning of chapter 6. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw. And so we know once again that Zechariah is going to have another vision. This is the eighth vision he has had in this single night. We have been studying for several weeks, but it has only been one night for Zechariah. And I think what is happening here is the night is moving along. It is far spent. It may even be that the sun is about to come up. It has been a very long evening for Zechariah. The daybreak is coming, and in the midst of all this vision, that means that reality is coming to Zechariah. Now, you know what this is like when you wake up in the morning. Perhaps 
your alarm goes off and you know you need to get up and you think you're just too tired, you need just a bit more sleep. And so you hit the snooze button, but there's one problem. In that interim of the alarm and falling back asleep, you've started to think about your day. And even though you know you can go back to sleep for at least one or two snooze buttons, you're, you can't find sleep. Because your mind has already started racing about all of the things you have to do when you get up. All of the people you need to get ready. All of the places you need to go. You may not be physically able to get out of bed yet, but your mind is off and running down the road. I think that's what's happening to Zechariah here. He's had these visions. He's been up all night. But now as the night is almost spent, reality is coming back to him. There is still so much before him and the people of Israel. After all, this temple we've been talking about for some time is barely started. If we were to look out across the city to see the temple, we would not be impressed. It would be a slab foundation and an altar. Nothing else would really have been built yet. There is so much yet to be accomplished. And at the same time, Zechariah and God's people are worn out. They're tired. They're hungry. And they're very aware that their return from exile really hasn't changed things much. Jerusalem is not back to its former glory. The temple is not finished. Their lives are not perfect. As a matter of fact, their lives are a mess. Perhaps even a greater mess than when they left Babylon. So what do you do in this situation? Perhaps you feel like this in your everyday life. It may not come from looking out at an unfinished temple or Jerusalem, but it may come every time you read the morning news. You see all the problems that are before you and your family and our nation. You see all of the difficulties that are before the church, all of the things that make evangelism more difficult, things that are in the way of missions and the work throughout the world. And you wonder how you will possibly take the next step. Well, what God does then immediately for Zechariah, but also for you and for me, is He's now going to give a message of hope. The very first thing that Zechariah sees are two mountains. Two mountains, we are told, (coughs) that are made of bronze. Now, they're not ordinary mountains. They're made of this metal bronze. Now, you may not be that impressed with bronze because it's not gold. It's not silver. It's not as tough as steel. But in Zechariah's day, bronze was one of the most valuable of metals because they didn't have steel. And if you were going to be powerful militarily, you used bronze to make your shields, which would typically have been made of of wood or of cloth, and you made them so much stronger by using bronze. You would put bronze in to shape spearheads and swords. You would mix them in with other metals to make them stronger. Bronze was a sign of military might and strength. And you can imagine as Zechariah looks up, he sees these two huge mountains of bronze. And then he sees chariots coming out from between them. 
We'll look at the chariots a little bit closer in just a moment. But what would this have reminded Zechariah of? I think the very first thing that would have come to his mind from his history and even from looking out at Jerusalem and the unfinished temple would have been the first temple built by Solomon. It would have been a reminder because when you went to visit the original temple, as you walked up the steps to go and enter in, you were met with two large bronze pillars. When the caps were put on top of them, they were more than 30 feet high. If you took a measuring string and measured around them in the circumference, they were more than 18 feet around. They were huge. They were so big and notable that they had names. Now think about that. Who names portions of their houses? But these columns had names. The one was named Jachin, and the other was named Boaz. And they were named these names because it meant something. As you walked up to the temple, you would look at the great bronze column, Jachin, and see its strength and know that that meant he establishes, that God establishes his people. And then you would look to the other side and see this massive column and know it was named Boaz, And that means in Him is strength. In the Lord my God is strength. And you would be reminded of this every time you went to see the Lord. To remember in His house that God was the one who was mighty and powerful. Because we need reminders of that each and every day, don't we? We know that God is God, but we oftentimes forget what He can do. We forget His characteristics and His attributes. We think His arm has grown short. We think He's grown lazy or His eye is wandering. But you see, these great bronze pillars would have reminded the Israelites that God was powerful and was for His people. But now, those columns are gone. They've been destroyed, haven't they? We look now for those columns of strength and and we can't see them. And that is a challenge for us. Because you see, we want tangible signs of strength. We know that the church of Jesus Christ is strong because we count our numbers. Because we look at our budget. Because we count how many missionaries are on the field. Because we look at how many programs have been implemented. We want to be able to touch and feel strength. But now, those visible reminders are gone. What will Zechariah do? What will the Israelites do without that show of God's strength? Well, what they will do is God pulls aside the veil and He shows them two bronze mountains. And it's a reminder to you and to me that everything that we think is real pales in comparison to the real reality of heaven. Everything that we think is strong is weak compared to the strength of God in the heavenlies. You see, we have the tendency to think that the earthly and the physical is the most real, when in reality, the real reality is in the realm of the Lord our God. 
the things that are unseen are more powerful than the things that are seen. The truth is far more impressive than what we can see and build. You see, these bronze mountains remind us that God has established His dwelling place and it can never be overthrown. These symbols of strength can never be scaled, can never be cast down. No matter what the appearance of the circumstances are, no matter how weak we appear to be, no matter how tired we are, God is strong. God establishes His people, and His people cannot be shaken. Not because we have it together, but because we have an almighty, all-powerful God. God's strength can never be overcome. And we need that message in a time of weakness, don't we? Does it frustrate you when you see legislation pass that dishonors God? Does it frustrate you when you see people who claim the name of Christ denying that the Bible is the true word of God? Or that Jesus is divine? Or that salvation comes only through Christ? Do you feel weak and helpless? Do you feel like the church is falling flat on its face, unable to crawl forward? Then you need to see the mountains of God. You need to see that God is all-powerful and that He has established His people. And if the pillar is cast down, the mountain will not be. And that in God is our strength. That is the picture that God puts before us. We need to be reminded that it is not our strength that is significant. It is God's. It is not just the strength of the Lord that we see in this picture, we also see the judgment of the Lord because as we have seen before, there are four chariots coming out from between these two bronze mountains from the dwelling place of God. And I think we're immediately reminded of the first vision that came to Zechariah because that was similar. You remember there were men on horseback on varying colored horses. But there's something different here. If you remember back to chapter 1, the men on horses were on a scouting expedition. They were going out, sent to see what the enemy was up to. And they saw that the enemy was comfortable and was at rest. These chariots are not on a scouting expedition. They are on a mission of war and conquest. You see... We don't think of chariots necessarily as being that powerful. But you have to understand that in the ancient world, the chariot was the equivalent of an Abrams tank. Have you ever seen an Abrams tank? It's gigantic. It defeats every other tank on every field of battle that there has ever been. Abrams are simply not knocked out, ever. Their armor can't be pierced. They don't have a regular engine. They have, they're so big they need a jet engine in the back to move them. When the enemy sees the Abrams tank, they run in terror. They don't even fight them. And that's what a chariot is like. This is how Babylon conquered the known world. They came on these chariots. Chariots do not come to seek out the enemy. They come to crush the enemy. Now, this gives us an idea of the power of God, and the power of God to accomplish His will. You see, it reminds us 
the chariots of another story. A story of Elisha the prophet. And how he and his servant in 2 Kings 6 were surrounded by a Syrian army. And the servant was beside himself. He didn't know what to do. They, here they'd been surrounded by the enemy army. They were surely going to be defeated. And Elisha looks at him and he says, Greater are those that are with us than those that are against us. And the servant looks at Elijah. And in its ancient Hebrew equivalent, looks at him and says, Are you nuts, prophet? Can you not see the enemy that's out there? And Elisha certainly sees the enemy. But he says, Open his eyes, Lord. And the servant's eyes are opened, and all of the mountains that ring around are filled with chariots of fire, the army of the Lord. You see, we think we are weak and defeated, Because we're not looking for the power of the Lord. The Lord will go forth with power. And He goes forth with power and judgment. This is not too different a situation than we experience today. We feel outnumbered. We feel like we are at a loss. But God is not powerless. And so we have these four chariots that will go out. They are chomping at the bit. Do you see, Zechariah describes them. They're strong horses and they're impatient. You can almost imagine in your mind's eye the holder of the reins pulling back as they go up on two legs. If they could speak, they could say, let us go, we're ready. They're snorting and making noise. They are ready to go out and show the power of the Lord. And there's an interesting parallel here to this scene and yet another scene in the Bible. Revelation chapter 6. That's when the power of God goes forth and there are four horsemen of similar color. There's a red, there's a white, there's a black, and there's a pale or dappled one as well. And at that point in time, the people of God are also under attack. They need God to defend them. And God is showing His power and His control. And so they go forth out into the world to conquer God's enemies, to cast them down, to show who is sovereign and that that is the Lord our God. But you see, our trouble is, we think we know better than God. And the irony is, is that this text is actually an occasion for this. If we look at this and we see the four horses... And there are described to us four winds. And it says the horses go out. Where do we expect the horses to go? Well, there are four points of the compass, aren't there? North, east, south, and west. We expect one horse to go in one direction. And so on and so on. But wait a minute. Look with me at verse 6. The black horses go toward the north country, while the white ones go after them. They're both going north. And the dappled ones go toward the south country. Okay. And where are the red ones? They're not even described. And you see, what some scholars do is they they think they understand this better than God does. And they think God has left out portions. Where are the red horses? Well, we'll write them in. 
Now, wait a minute. If the black horses are going north, the white don't need to also. They should go west. Cross out after them and write to the west. I'm not making this up. You see, they have an idea of what God's word should say to meet their expectations. But you see, that's not what is happening here. There is an apparent confusion, but God is not confused. We have to resist the urge to correct God, whether it is playing with the text, or for many of us, we would say we would never write in our Bibles and cross things out. But we are glad to correct God's providence and to tell God what He must do and how He must build the church and what He must do in America. Instead, we need to be quiet and hear what God has to say. Because you see, God knows where the threat is from. God knows that the most significant threat that the people of God have comes from the north. It's where the Babylonians came from. It's where the Persians are. It's where the Assyrians came down from. And God wants to make sure that they are defeated and punished. And so he sends not only the black chariot, but he also sends the white chariot as well. And then where is the other historic enemy of God's people? Isn't it Egypt? The land of slavery? The place in which the Lord led them out for the exodus? Where is that? But in the south. You see, God has a plan to set things right. And He begins by judging the nations that have harmed His people. You see... Prophecy is not just prehistory. It is not just a prediction of what will happen. God can prophesy what will happen because in His providence, He is powerful to make it happen. We need to stop looking at the Bible and try to find out what we think God should do and will do in the future and understand the character and the power of God and know that He will bring to pass everything He has promised, not because He sees the future, but because He controls the future, because He acts. And these chariots remind us of His power, that He can never be stopped. Now, if the church of Jesus Christ understood this, would we let some talking head on a television bother us? If God goes forth in His almighty power to judge the nations and to build up the church, why would we possibly be concerned about all of the things that have us running with fear? We need to take our minds off of that and put them on the living God. Because he is the one who is able. And he brings about a rest for his people. Ask yourself, why is God going out for war? Unlike the first vision, this is a military action. Unlike the first vision, now it is God, in verse 8, who will be at rest. He is setting things right. God is not merely trying to implement abstract justice. You see, sometimes we view God as acting just because things abstractly or 
set apart from everything practical, need to be put right. God is theoretically fixing the world. But that's not why God goes out to war. God goes out to war because the nations need to be punished. Because they have hurt His people. God goes out to war to bring rest and peace for His people, for you and for me. He knows the people of Israel are weak and outnumbered. He knows they have been attacked and He will vindicate them. You see, God is jealous for His people. You need to know today that God loves those in Christ. If you have committed your life by faith to Jesus Christ, if you have said, Lord, I am weak, I have no hope, I am a sinner lost in wickedness, and I can only find hope and forgiveness in the work of another, in the Lord Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself so that I might know righteousness and so that my sins might be taken from me and placed upon him. If that is your hope and trust, then you need to know, beloved, that God loves you. He cares for you. And He will protect you and vindicate you. There are so many times of the day that we can forget that. We forget it when we go to our checkbook and there's too much month for money. We forget it when we go to our neighbors and we see hostility and broken relationships. We forget it when we look at our family and it hasn't turned out in the picture-perfect way that we had planned. There are so many things that cause us distress and worse yet, cause us to think that God has forgotten us. But what Zechariah is saying here is that God has not only not forgotten you, He goes out to war on your behalf. This is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is indeed the king over his people. And he goes out to conquer not only all his, but all our enemies. This is the power of Jesus. We must not fear the world. Because greater is he that is with us than those who are against us. There's a second picture image that is placed before us beginning at verse 9. And this is somewhat of a transition in the book of Zechariah. Up to this point, Zechariah has been getting visions. Now, the Lord is speaking directly to him in what we might call a normal prophetic revelation. God says, this is my word to you. And so, the visions are over, and this is sort of an appendix or a key to the visions. You see, in the visions, God has told us what He will do. He will protect His people. He will accept His people. He will set things right. Now, He is telling us how He is going to do it. This is like if you've ever seen a complicated map with all sorts of symbols and images and colors and lines. And you don't know what to make of it until you look into the corner and you see that magical thing called the key. Or the legend. And it tells you this symbol means a capital city. This symbol means a university. This means a river. This is a mountain. And so now here what we have is the key to the visions. God is telling us how he is going to do these things. 
And so a contingent comes from Babylon, made up of three men. We see this in verse 10. God is bringing more resources for His people to build the temple. And He tells Zechariah to take of their resources and fashion a crown, which is a symbol of success and sovereignty. But there's something else that's interesting going on here, and this drives the scholars bananas too. You see, the Hebrew word for crown is plural. But the verb that it goes with is singular. And that just grates on their nerves. It's like me saying, you know, he are a good person. They is helpful people. It just doesn't sound right. And so we wonder what is going on here. But I think even this is a picture and an image for us. You see, what the scholars often want to do is to get out their erasers again and make it work. But there's a reason why God has made the plural and the singular to go together. You see, oftentimes an ancient crown was simply a circlet of metal. It was a circle that you placed on your head. And sometimes there would be multiple circles that would be woven together into one single crown and placed on the head of the king. The Bible tells us exactly of one such case. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 12. And the one who wears many diadems, or many crowns, is whom? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course you know the hymn. Crown him with many crowns. It is a sign of the authority and power of King Jesus. So even in a grammatical error, Zechariah is beginning to point us away from the here and the now and toward the eternal. But there's another thing that happens that seems very weird and is out of place. The scholars' erasers are getting very low because who should the crown be put upon? Well, the king, right? Or at least the sort of king. You remember previously we looked at Zerubbabel who was the governor of this area. We said he wasn't a king, but he was sort of a king. So he should get the crown, shouldn't he? There's only one problem. I don't see the word Zerubbabel in Zechariah 6. So what the scholars do is they turn their pencil over and they don't use the eraser. They now use the pencil part and they write the word Zerubbabel in. Because that's how it should be. Because God is showing political power and authority. But the thing is, this revelation is not a political revelation. It is a prophetic revelation. The crown goes on Joshua the high priest. Now Joshua is not going to rule. He's not even of the line of David. As a matter of fact, the crown doesn't even stay on his head that long, does it? In verse 12 we see that someone called the branch is referred to. And then again in verse 14, the crown is taken and placed in the temple itself. And so what we have here is not that Joshua is made a king, but we have the point that one who is the priest is now also a king. Now this may not seem like a big deal, but you have to understand that nowhere else in all of the Old Testament do the offices of priest and king ever go together. Ever. 
They are so strictly separated that when one king, King Uzziah, went into the temple and performed one priestly duty of burning incense, he was instantly struck with leprosy. The priest and the king never go together. They are separate. Except here, the high priest is crowned and he's called the branch. What is going on here? You see, what's going on here is the Lord God is showing to us, again, the reality beyond what we can see. He's showing that there is a true temple that will be built by the branch. And the branch will branch out, the text says. From a small beginning, it will branch out and cover the world. And the true temple will be Completed, not just a building that we can look to and see strength, but a true temple. Because the true temple is actually God's people, both individually and corporately. You see, we are God's temple in that the Lord makes us fit to dwell within us. As the Spirit of God dwells in the individual believer. And then together we are living stones built together into a living house or temple. And who is the cornerstone of that house? No one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. Our great high priest, the book of Hebrews tells us. Our coming king, the book of Revelation tells us. He is the priest king. He is the one that we look forward to returning. He is the one who has all power and authority. He is the one who will set all things right. He is the priest who will dwell on the throne. He is the true king. And even in small details, God gives us an encouraging picture. Look with me, if you would, at verse 12. Behold, the man whose name is the branch... Do the words, behold the man, sound familiar to you? They should. Because it's exactly what Pilate says in John 19.5 as he introduces the Lord Jesus Christ who is wearing a crown of thorns and wearing kingly purple robes as he is being mocked. He is the priest set to climb up on the cross and be the sacrifice, and yet the inscription reads, here is the king. This is who Jesus is. He brings together the offices of priest and king for the blessing and benefit of his people. He is the true king. He gathers together his people, and he gathers them even from afar. Look at verse 15. And those who are afar off, shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Each and every one of you in this room should be thankful for the promise of Zechariah 6.15. Because I don't know if you know it, but Katy, Texas is an awful long way from Jerusalem. We are the ones who are afar off. We are the ones who Jesus brings to himself and to his people. We are the ones that Jesus protects and sends out his warriors to defeat our enemies and shows us his mountains of strength. You see, this picture here that is shown to Zechariah is not merely 
for the Jews of that day. It is for you and for me as well when we feel weak, when we feel helpless, when we feel hopeless. God shows us His strength. He shows us His judgment. He shows us the rest that He has prepared for us. And He shows us our great high priest who is enthroned with a crown on His head, who is the builder of the true temple and who is the true and ultimate King. This is the story of you and me. For us, it is a blessing to be called the people of God. For us, it is an encouragement to see the strength of the Lord our God. For us, it is glory to see the great high priest king that we have. Our Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing to our minds the Lord Jesus. Lord, we confess that we do not think of Jesus often enough. That we wander away from Him. That our minds are elsewhere. And yet, Lord, we are so thankful that you draw our attentions back to Jesus continually over and over again, reminding us of how glorious He is, of His great and ultimate reign, and of His power and authority. And in that, Lord, we can have confidence and hope, because it does not depend on us. It does not depend on our might. But we merely serve the great and powerful King. Help us to remember that, to speak of that, and to encourage others with that today. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.